The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Penny, and we good? We're good? Okay. We're good out there? Y'all are good? Okay, great. I'm good, too. Wonderful. Uh, my name is Penny, and uh, I'm the pastor here. And uh, friends, it is great to be with you. If you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're here. And uh, I know Tobias already thanked uh, those who, who worked hard yesterday and making yesterday happen, but I, I too, want to ex- express my thanks. Uh, there were a lot of people who worked a lot of hours and used their gifts and abilities uh, for the sake of our people, that we could have fellowship and time together. So from the, those who were working with the kids, face painting and dunk tanks, to those cooking a pig, to those uh, setting up and cleaning up and um, making macaroni and cheese and all the different things that went into it. I mean, there were so many things, and uh, I'm just so thankful for you all and the ways in which you have... Um, have used your gifts and have been a blessing to, uh, to so many of us. So thank you. Um, well, this morning we are uh, turning our attention again to Matthew 13. Uh, this is the fourth uh, sermon in a row in the book of Matthew, uh, in chapter 13 of Matthew's gospel. And that's because we are looking at Jesus's kingdom parables this uh, spring, this, uh, what are we in? In this fall, excuse me, not this spring. <laughs> I was one of the ones cooking the pig. I've been up for a long time, so uh, bear with me. Um, No, uh, as we're looking at Jesus' kingdom parables this fall, and so uh, as we get into this next parable, before we do, it's good to remind ourselves what a parable is. A parable is a metaphor or a story based on a common experience that challenges our preconceived notions and reveals to us a better or more biblical understanding of whatever the topic might be. And so Jesus has been talking about the kingdom, and so he's been using these metaphors, these stories, these parables to help inform us, to change our understanding, to reshape and reform it. And he's using these common experiences like agricultural metaphors, like a sower and his seed and the soils, like wheat and weeds. And this morning, there's another agricultural parable metaphor, that of seed, mustard seed. But then he starts to move beyond it and get into leaven. But these two parables are getting at the same thing that we've experienced before. They're reforming and reshaping how we are to understand the kingdom of God. What is our place in it and how it comes about? And these two parables we're going to take together because they immediately come one after another, but also because they're looking both at the same theme of the kingdom. And so let's go ahead and read verse 31, beginning in verse 31 of Matthew 13. He, that being Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. 
And as we come to it, we acknowledge, Lord, that apart from you, our eyes would be blind, our hearts would be hard, hard, and we would turn from you. That apart from your grace and your mercy, uh, we, would, we would never come near to you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would come near to us, and that by your grace, you would open our eyes, by your kindness, you would soften our hearts, and that you would teach us the beauties of your kingdom, so that we would live as your kingdom people today and forever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in the early 1800s, there was a man named Richard Tapper Cadbury. He lived in Birmingham, England, and Richard Cadbury had heard of this new product that was starting to sweep throughout the land of England. He had heard of this new product that was coming to England from faraway shores. It wasn't grown there, it wasn't created there, it wasn't made there. it, It was coming from different countries, different lands, different places from other parts of the earth. And so Richard, upon hearing the news of this new item, this new commodity, he sent his youngest son, John, to London to learn and to explore and to investigate this new tropical commodity that had attracted such great interest. And this new commodity was cacao. Now, you know what cacao is. Cacao is the bean that forms the the basis of chocolate. So cacao bean, it's grown in tropical places in the world, right? It's this bean, and they, they take it down, they cut it open, right? And there's this big seed, and it's got this disgusting white gelatinous kind of gooey thing all over, and they scoop it out, and they let it sit out in the sun, and, and it eventually dries, and it ferments, and, and we get the cacao bean that is ground up, and oils that are extracted, and other things are introduced into it, and, and we have chocolate. We know that this is how it works, right? Chocolate. We don't call it cacao most of the time. We call it chocolate or cocoa, right? But, but it's this cacao bean that they were being introduced to. It's something that we're familiar with, chocolate. It's around us all the time. It's a part of our normal lives. We have bars of chocolate and candies of chocolate and shells and flavoring. And, and the global chocolate market is $138.5 billion. I mean, it, Chocolate is a part of our daily experience. In America, we consume 2.8 million pounds of chocolate every year. 11 pounds per person. And I have to tell you, my family, we are keeping up with that. (laughs) Yeah, we like some chocolate. We love chocolate. We love it. But in the early 1800s, European nations weren't sure what to do with chocolate. Should they melt it down and drink it? Should they, should they let it become a bar and eat it? They weren't sure. In fact, Richard Cadbury, when he first heard of it, he thought that this could be a nutritious drink, a nutritious non-alcoholic drink that would rival gin. And so seeing this as a great opportunity, Richard Cadbury and his family invested in chocolate. And they started the Cadbury Chocolate Company. Now, early on in the initial days of the Cadbury Chocolate Company, they struggled. By the 1850s, the company was in decline. They only had 11 employees, and they were losing money. But shortly after that, after a few, uh, a few changes in leadership, some new decisions, some new products, the 
companies started to take off. They started creating new things like fancy boxes. That's what they called them. These were just boxes of chocolates, you know, little chocolates with flavors inside. In Canada, we call them pot of gold because <laughs> that's what they're like. They're pot of gold. They're good, um, right? So I, I don't know what we call them here in America, but they called them fancy boxes, and, and they invented chocolate Easter eggs, and they were made most famous by their milk chocolate candy bar, the dairy milk bar, which we can actually still get today. Well, with these inventions, the company started to take off. It was, on, it was in decline, but, but it started to take off, and it grew. And they built, and they expanded. That from humble beginnings in Birmingham, England, it became an international force. So much so that the craft company, a number of years ago, attempted to buy it for $16.3 billion. It had come a long way from those days of Richard Cadbury. And we love these kinds of stories, don't we? Stories of rags to riches, humble beginnings to great expanse, to great growth. We, <clears throat> excuse me, love these sorts of stories. Books are written about them. In fact, I learned all of this in the book Chocolate Wars, which is very fun to read. But, but books are written about them. Movies are made. Myths are created. Humble beginnings that blossom into expansive growth. We love these stories because they're stories of grand, triumphant stories, stories full of hope. And we love them because they're a small reflection of the grander and more triumphant and most hopeful story of God's kingdom. We love these rags to riches stories because they're, they're a demonstration, a small reflection of God's kingdom. You see, when Jesus speaks about the parables of the kingdom, and in these parables, he talks about the beginnings of the kingdom, he turns our attention to the fact that the kingdom begins very humbly. It has humble beginnings. Now, that's not how people would have thought the kingdom would have come, right? I mean, people in Jesus' day, they wouldn't have thought that it would come humbly. They thought that it would come with power and with might. Right? They expected the Messiah to come, and when he came, that, that he would bring his kingdom, and he would wipe out the Roman Empire, and he would scatter the enemies of the people of God, and he would come with great flair and great power. And yet, what does Jesus say in verse 31? The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of seeds. Have you all ever seen a mustard seed? It's one to two millimeters in diameter. If I had a mustard seed on the tip of my finger and I showed it to you from here, most of you wouldn't be able to even see it. It's that small. It's easily missed. It's tiny and easily overlooked. And what Jesus is saying is that's how his kingdom is. That's how his kingdom began. Now, to his original hearers, this would have sounded odd. This would have seemed strange. They wouldn't have expected the kingdom of God to come with such humble origins. And yet, when we think about the king of the kingdom, it really shouldn't surprise us, should it? I mean, when we think about Jesus and the story of his coming, right? Where was Jesus born? He was born in a manger, right? He wasn't born in a great palace, he wasn't born in the seat of power. That's where people expected him. You remember the wise men who came from the east. When they heard of the coming of the king of the Jews, where did they go to find him? They went to Jerusalem. And of course they did because that was the epicenter of the Jewish world. And they went to Herod, who was the ruler of that area. They went to the place of power. They went to the person of authority. But that is not where the king was. 
No, he was born in a little town in Bethlehem. And he was born in a manger. And he was born not into wealth and influence, but to two poor, easily ignored and scandal-laden parents. Jesus had humble beginnings. But the humble beginnings of his kingdom didn't end with his birth. I mean, think about his followers. Who were his followers? Fishermen and tax collector, women, right? Women wouldn't have been followers in this day. That would have been scandalous. Women and, and men who had the name Zealot, the word Zealot attached to their name. It wasn't the educated and the powerful and the influential that Jesus sought. It was the ignored and the marginalized and the forgotten. And Paul thinking about the beginnings of the church in 1 Corinthians 1 and Corinth itself, he said to them, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And that is us. That is who we are. We are the humble. We are not the wise of the world. We are not those that the world would look upon and say, these are the people that I'm going to call to, to be part of a movement. No, the kingdom of God began humbly. But it's out of these humble beginnings that there is expansive growth. Because Jesus doesn't just say that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. He tells us what becomes of this mustard seed. It is the smallest of seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. A mustard seed can grow into a bush or a tree that's 6 to 12 feet tall. Now, it's not as big as an oak or a sequoia or a maple tree. But that's not the point. The point of this growth that Jesus is talking about is, is what one theologian said is the kingdom eventually attaining a significant proportion despite its entirely inauspicious beginning. That it went from these humble beginnings to this great growth, from a tiny seed to a large tree. Or consider the other parable Jesus gives us in verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now in this, don't think about like a particular like grain of yeast. That's not what Jesus is talking about. The picture that he's giving us is a piece of, of leaven, a, a piece of last week's unbaked dough that has been set aside to now be used to leaven this week's flour. So those of you who make sourdough, you sourdough makers out there, you know what this is like. Right? You have the lump of dough, and before you, before you bake your bread, right, you break it off, but you always leave one little bit aside, right? Call it the starter. You call it the starter. Maybe you even divide it up, and you give it out to people, right? And, and you start with this starter, and with this starter, you add flour, and, and you feed it every day, right? That's what we call it. We feed it every single day, and over time, it grows. And as you add flour and time, it starts to grow and grow and grow. And this little bit of dough... When we go to bake our bread, we leave another little bit aside, and we use that again to start the next lump. And that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what he's talking about, that this little bit of leaven 
that was set aside from a week ago or from a previous bake, this little bit of leaven is going to be used to leaven all the flour. And when it's leavened, you have an amount far greater than what you began with. Theologians speculate that the amount of flour that Jesus began with, these three measures, that when it was leavened and baked, that it would have been enough bread to feed over 100 people. Now, in our minds, that doesn't sound too extravagant because we go to restaurants and they feed 100 people in like an hour and a half at lunch. And yesterday, you came to the picnic and we fed over 100 people outside, right? Like, this doesn't seem that extravagant, but, but the point isn't the number of people that's being fed. The point is that from a little bit of leaven, from a single mustard seed, there is growth and growth and growth, and it is beyond expectation, And that is the kingdom of God. It began small with this humble origin, but it grows and expands beyond our wildest dreams. From humble beginnings to expansive growth. And there are three things I want us to notice about this growth. That as we think about the kingdom of God growing in this world, we we need to be mindful of what this growth will look like. The first is that this growth comes from outside us. That's the conclusion we have to drive from the leaven, right? Because without the leaven, the three measures of flour, they're just going to be flour. They'll never turn into bread. For it to be transformed and changed into bread, it needs an agent outside of itself to change it. And that's true of us. You see, for there to be change in our lives, in my life and in yours, and for there to be change in our neighborhoods and our city and in our world, we need a power to affect that change that we cannot bring up or derive from ourselves. Contrary to what like 99% of commencement speakers say, to change the world, you, do not, you should not look at yourself. That is not the place that you are to look to yourself, to inside, to your heart, because to change the world, to change our lives, to affect change in our neighborhoods, what we need is an agent outside of ourselves. We need Christ. That is the only power. He is the only one who can transform us. And we actually see this happening in the early church. Those forgotten and marginalized, and ignored people that Jesus called to follow him? Do you remember what happens to them in Acts? John and Peter, they're standing before the religious leaders. And the religious leaders, they're, they're shocked and marveled. And they're, they're, they're confounded that these men who were uneducated could now be so bold and wise beyond their education. And what was the conclusion they came to? Not, man, they studied so hard. Not... I just missed it. I had no idea this guy was a prodigy. No, 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 no. The conclusion they came to was they have been with Jesus. That being in the presence of Christ had transformed them. And friends, that has taken place in our lives. I know some of your stories. Some of you know mine. They changed from death to life. From being an enemy of God to being a child of a king, that doesn't come from something within. That is not us making that change on our own. No, no, that takes place only because the kingdom has come upon us. You see, kingdom growth comes from outside us. 
That's the first thing we need to recognize. The second thing is that kingdom growth is slow. Right? I mean, the growth of a bush or the leavening of flour, and it begins immediately, right? As soon as the leaven gets uh, surrounded by that flour, it starts to, to happen. The growth starts to take place, but, but often the, the evidence of that growth is delayed. In fact, sometimes the growth is imperceptible in the moment, right? I mean, think about your kids as they grow, right? You're with them every single day. You talk to them. You, you interact with them. You see them, and you know that they're growing, but, but you don't recognize the growth, right? You don't see it until kids when somebody comes who hasn't seen you in like three weeks or a month or a year, and what do they say, kids? They look at you, and they go, oh, I can't believe you're so tall, right? how did this happen? You used to be like this, and now you're like this. I don't know. And you're like, I grew. Like, that's what you're thinking, right, kids? That's what you're thinking. <laughs> and don't worry. It happens to us all like they did it to me. They did it to your parents. They did it to your grandparents. You'll do it to somebody else. I promise. It's just a rite of passage. But the thing is, is the parents who have been watching the child grow, we actually don't even see it on a day-to-day basis until it's pointed out to us. Or until we stick them in the doorframe and we mark off their, their uh, height at their birthday and then we go, I had no idea you grew 12 inches in like a month and a half, right? Like, that's what, that's what we do. Because in the midst of it, it's almost imperceptible. Right? In the midst of it, we can't see it. That growth is slow and steady. And this is important for us to remember about the kingdom because the truth is, is we don't like slow. And we don't like plodding. And we don't like waiting. To paraphrase the author, Ashley Hales, we act like waiting time is wasted time. But what if, what if instead of wanting immediate results and tangible demonstrations of success, what if the kingdom of God didn't work that way? What if the kingdom growth isn't seen in a week or a month or a decade or even a generation? I mean, what if we never see the full fruit of our labors? Do you remember the analogy that Paul used when he talked about the proclamation of the gospel? He said, some people plant, some people water. God makes it grow and others will harvest. So what if we're planters? What if we're just called to plant the seeds of the gospel, but we'll never see it spring to life? What if we're waterers? We faithfully water the ground day in and day out, but but we never see that tree poke through the ground. Maybe we'll see bits of kingdom growth, and perhaps by God's grace, he'll allow us to see incredible amounts of fruit. But, but what if the point isn't to see the fullness of our labors, but instead to trust that our labors aren't in vain, regardless of the speed of the growth? What if the point is to remember that slow doesn't mean stopped? That just because maybe the the kingdom seems to be growing slowly in the West right now, that doesn't mean that the kingdom isn't growing. I mean, because it is, right? In other places, in the global South, in China, it is exploding. 
And so what if it means that maybe the kingdom might be slowing here, but, but it is growing like gangbusters somewhere else, or maybe it just sl- is slow to begin with? Like, does that mean it has stopped? Well, of course not. No, Jesus is telling us that his kingdom will grow. It will grow, and we have to remember this, that God's kingdom growth is his enterprise, and he is doing it in his time. We have to remember, kingdom growth is slow. It comes from outside us, but, but finally, kingdom growth brings blessing. That's the last thing I want us to see. Notice what Jesus says about the tree. The birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Out of this little seed come a place of protection and refuge, a place of rest, a home. Now, most theologians think that this is an allusion to Ezekiel 17. And in Ezekiel 17, God says that he's going to plant his tree, and this tree is going to sprout branches, and it's going to produce fruit, and every kind of bird is going to nest in it. And that is a reference to the incorporation of the nations and the Gentiles into the people of God. You see, because that is the promise of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the promise was that the Messiah would one day come, and when he comes, he would bring the kingdom of heaven, and the nations would be brought into God's people. That God's people wouldn't just be made up of Jewish believers, but it would be people from every tribe and tongue and nation that people from every land would experience the blessing of God, that that people from every land would experience the blessing of his kingdom, that God is bringing blessing to the nations. That is the promise of the Old Testament when Jesus says that the birds will make their nest in this tree that has grown up from a small seed. He's declaring to us that the kingdom of God will extend into the farthest reaches of this earth. And it will include followers from every land and every place. That the kingdom will bring blessing. And y'all, this is what we sing every Christmas. Every single Advent, we sing joy to the world. Why is it joy to the world? Because the Lord has come. Joy to the earth. Why is there joy to the earth? Because the Savior reigns. He comes to make his blessing flow. How far? As far as the curse is found. He comes to extend his blessing into all of the earth. That's why there is joy to the world. That's why there is rejoicing in the earth. Because the blessing of the kingdom is being brought through Christ. The blessing of the nations. The joy of the earth. That which the nations are in need of, and what we are in need of, it comes only through Christ and his kingdom. A kingdom that comes from outside of us, and a kingdom that grows slowly, but a kingdom that brings blessing. A kingdom that began so humbly, but is growing expansively. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your kingdom, it has come, and it is coming. We are thankful that you have inaugurated the kingdom with the coming of our Lord Jesus and that that it will be consummated on that day when he returns. And on that day when the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in, we will know the blessing of your kingdom. And so until that day, we wait. We wait with patience, knowing that your kingdom grows, though slowly. We wait with patience, expecting that it will one day come and that joy will come to the earth. 
joy to the world because our Savior reigns and he has brought his blessing to the nations. And so we ask that you would allow us to wait, allow us to be patient, and we ask, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And we pray all this in Christ's name. And God's people said together, amen.